theme of Leviticus is is holiness. And of course, a lot of the book is written to the priests that were serving there at the tabernacle. As we open up uh, the book of Exodus, we saw that Moses was called by God to go into Egypt and to be used of God to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And so that's what happened as we went through the book of Exodus. And from the time that Moses was called there on Mount Sinai, as he saw the burning bush there in Exodus chapter 2 and into chapter 3, to the time that they would finally leave Egypt after being there for 400 years, that it was a time span of those plagues coming down upon Egypt about a year. And so they would come into the wilderness and there the Lord would give them the law. He made a covenant with his people, and then he would also give instructions to Moses in the construction of the tabernacle. And so that's what we studied very carefully as we journeyed through the book of Exodus. And all the furnishings and the priestly garments and the tabernacle itself, we saw how it spoke of and pointed to Jesus Christ. And so it was a wonderful study. But that would cover about the first year of their exodus when they came out of of, um, Egypt. And as we're in Leviticus, it's interesting that scholars will tell you that the book of Leviticus covers about one month. As they're receiving the law, as the priests there are receiving instructions how to do the the offerings and the sacrifices and all those things that pertain to their duties and, and then the feasts that are described to them. And remember that the Lord is also speaking to the children of Israel because he is preparing them, first of all, as a nation that is not just going to stay out there in the wilderness, but when they come into the promised land. So he's preparing them for when they begin to, to farm the land, when they begin to plant orchards and, and begin to have vineyards, how they are to work the land. And we saw last week, of course, that the Lord said, I want you to rest the land once every seven years. And so specific instructions are given to them, not only concerning the uh, ceremonial and religious regulations, but also the civil regulations as well. And so as he's preparing them and giving them the law, telling them that you guys are to be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And so that was an over and is an overwhelming theme in, in the book of Leviticus is holiness. And the thing about holiness is this, that as the priests are told to be holy, and of course, then Peter would borrow from Leviticus chapter 19, that phrase, that you be holy because the Lord, your God, is holy to you and me as New Testament priests. Then Peter would go on to say that you and I are a royal priesthood. And so we're a holy nation. As the church, we are to be holy. As as the people of God and as Christians, we are to be ones that desire to live in holiness. The problem can be this, that oftentimes that we will come along and we will come up with our own definition of holiness. And we will emphasize other things that really perhaps doesn't... uh, give the definition, a true godly definition and biblical definition of what holiness is. We see that what would happen in Jesus' day is it would be the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees that came along and they prided in being righteous and in their righteous works before the Lord. But it was Jesus that said to them that you guys are like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly you're polished and, and you look beautiful, but inwardly you're full of dead man's bones. And the thing with holiness that we're going to see as we open up chapter 26, that holiness begins with the heart. It begins with a heart that is in love with the Lord and desires to walk in the ways of the Lord. And you see, as I read in my own devotions this week in Proverbs, that out of the heart flows the issues of life. And that is so true with you and me, isn't it? 
that whatever is in your heart is going to be worked out in your life. It's going to be worked out in your speech, in your behavior, in your conduct, in your faith, and in your purity. And if you have a heart for the Lord and you love Him, and of course that's the greatest commandment we have seen as we've gone through the Old Testament, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where it begins. And you can do all the external, outward appearances of being holy, just as the religious leaders were. But Jesus said, you don't have a true heart for me. Jesus would condemn them, as we saw on a few weeks ago on Sunday mornings. We're going through Matthew's gospel. And Jesus, only a few hours away from going to the cross, would then rebuke the religious leaders and say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Because they had a lot of religiousness, but no true relationship with the Lord. And so that's what we've been talking a lot about is, is in holiness, keep this in mind. That holiness is going to be worked out in your life as you have a heart for the Lord. And as we go through chapter 26 here, we're going to see really that chapter 26 is kind of a summation of the whole Old Testament. Because the Lord is going to say that if you follow my ways and you keep my commandments, then there's going to be blessing. And we see that in verses 1 through 13 of the chapter. And then in verses 14 through 39, he's going to speak of the curses or the, or the retribution that will take place if you walk in disobedience, if you turn away from me. And so what this chapter is going to show you and me is that definitely we have choices to make. We see 32 times the Lord is going to say, if you do this, if you do this, and every single day, we as believers have choices to make if we're going to walk in the ways of the Lord, if we're going to trust Him, if we're going to rest in His promises, if we're going to walk in obedience, or whether we're going to go and walk in disobedience, or go the way of the world, or compromise in our life, whatever it might be. And we need to understand that the scripture says that whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. And every single one of us, every single day, are we are sowing seeds. And if we are sowing seeds to the Spirit, as Galatians tells us, then unto the Spirit we're going to reap unto everlasting life. That is, good things are going to happen to you and to me. But if we are sowing unto the flesh, then unto the flesh corruption is going to be coming up as a part of the harvest that is in our lives. So the seeds that we plant today, that is the, the decisions that we make, there's going to be a harvest tomorrow. And there are consequences for walking in disobedience, and we need to understand that. There is blessing for walking in obedience. And I understand very clearly that we are under grace, and I love to talk about the grace of God. But I also know that the Lord, from Genesis through Revelation, gives us warning that if you go your own way, or if you don't have a heart for me, if you go after idols, and the idol can be anything that is a priority over your relationship with the Lord, that if you walk after the ways of the world, then that's what's going to lead to bondage and despair, discouragement and defeat in your life. And so that's what we're going to see as we go through this chapter. And so as we begin, you shall not make idols, again, Leviticus chapter 26, for yourselves. Neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. You know what? It really sums up here in verses 1 through uh, 2. Just the, the um, blessings that are in the Lord and, and what we and how we can experience the, the blessings of God. And that is, in verse 3, you walk in my statutes, keep my commandments, and perform them. He gives them a warning, and we've seen this warning. 
We've seen this law given to them. You guys are not to go after idols. You're not to make any carved images, have those sacred pillars that you set up in the land. And if you do, then there's going to be trouble. And we are going to see actually in this chapter that the Lord's going to be telling them their history. And when we look at the history of the children of Israel and the nation of Israel, that what they went through, when they went through those times of going off into captivity and, and famine and pestilence and, and all the difficulties, being defeated by their enemies, is because it started because they began to worship false idols. They began to worship the idols of the Canaanites and they began to, to compromise and, and be involved in, in false religious activities. And it would lead them to their downfall. And the Lord, over and over again, as we look at the Old Testament, would say to them, that turn back to me and, and remember what I have done for you. And you are special treasure unto me. And he would reaffirm his love to them, but they would continue in their disobedience. So the key for you and for me and walking in obedience is you have a love for the Lord. And don't have any idols set up in your heart. And it's very easy in our society and in our world today to have an idol that's set up. Anything that is of importance over the Lord. Anything that motivates you over the Lord. Anything that you have set up in your heart that, that you turn to and that you rely on. That you look to in your hour of need and in your directions and, and looking to and in wisdom. That can be an idol that's set up in our lives. And so we need to be ones that, Lord, I am going to in every area of my life that I'm going to turn to you and trust you, have a heart for you, loving you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm going to abide in your love, and I want to abide in your word. And I have a choice I know to make every day we do when we get up, whether we're going to honor the Lord in the things that we do and in how we conduct ourselves and the things that we say or whether we're going to compromise. And I pray for us that every single day we would begin that day with, Lord, that I love you, and Lord, I desire to walk in your ways and to know you more. You see, that's a real key. It's such a key to studying the Scriptures because, you see, as you study the Scriptures, you know the Lord more as you know of his character, his nature, his love. As you know of his goodness and his faithfulness, you can't help but love the Lord more. What he has done for you and for me. How his provision and blessing has come to us. And as I read the scriptures, I am just, I'm amazed at his love for me and what he has done for me. And the blessings that he desires to give me in my life. What he's already done in blessing me. And I think, wow, Lord, you're so good. And you can't help but grow in that love for him. So that's why studying the scriptures is so important. So you guys, you are to reverence my sanctuary. You are to to keep my Sabbath. That is, you rest in me. That Sabbath, as we have seen, was be a day where they were to rest and reflect on the Lord. You and I, that we are to rest and reflect on the Lord every day. That sanctuary was a place that they reverenced. And, of course, it was a place of worship. And it was a place where they approached the Lord. And so we see here that he begins to talk about, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments, verse 4, then I will give you rain in the season, and the land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing uh, shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread of the full and dwell on your land safely. And so, first of all, the first blessing of holiness is God's provision. And we see that the Lord is saying that I'm going to give you this land flowing with milk and honey. 
I'm going to give you a land that is a good land, and he's going to provide blessing for them. The land produced its yield, and the Lord said, I'm going to produce the rain. They didn't have drip irrigation. They didn't have irrigation systems back then. They needed the rain, the early rains and the latter rains. And the Lord says, as you keep my ways, if it is you have a heart for me, you're not turning to idols, but your heart is towards me alone, because I am the one that is the Lord, the one and true Lord that I'm going to bless your land and provide for you. And it's the same with you and me. As we in this world trust him and look to him and have a heart for him, know that he's going to provide for you. And again, we have decisions in, in those areas of, you know, in our jobs or businesses or whatever it might be. Are we going to uh, walk in holiness? Are we going to do those things that honor the Lord and, and in a way that honors the Lord? Or are we going to compromise? And the Lord is saying, as you... Walk according to my ways and honor me in what you do. You're going to see that I'm going to provide for you just as he provided for them because they would go in and work the land. That was their livelihood and that was the way that they would be able to eat. And the Lord says, trust me and you'll see me work this out in your life. In verse 6, I will give you peace in the land and you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, for they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. So not only a promise of his provision, but God's protection as well. And it was fulfilled literally, as you look at their history, wasn't it, when they would turn to the Lord. I think one of my favorite stories in the scriptures we see in the book of Judges when it was 135,000 Midianites that had gathered there in the land of Israel. They had come in and they'd been harassing the children of Israel, stealing their harvest, coming in and and, and, uh, doing war against them for seven years, causing the children of Israel to be in bondage. And the Lord came to Gideon and said, Gideon, I'm going to use you, mighty man of valor, to free the children of Israel. And so Gideon would blow the trumpet and thousands came down from the hill of Israel and the Lord said Gideon you got too many people I want to get the glory and so he would reduce it down as we talked about on Sunday morning to 300 men 300 men that were cupping the water as they went to the brook to drink everybody else was dismissed so as 300 of the choice men of Israel that that he had chosen to go against 135,000 Midianites and they would defeat the Midianites and we see victory like that all throughout the Old Testament we see it with Asa as he would face a million man army of the Ethiopians coming against him and he trusted in the Lord and he prayed we see it with Hezekiah didn't we As you read there the book of Isaiah, as you read in 2 Kings, his story, how Hezekiah would receive the threats from the king of Assyria who surrounded Jerusalem at that time. The Assyrians were brutal. They had already taken the ten northern tribes off in the captivity. They had come into Judah and began to take over the cities. And so they surrounded Jerusalem and Shennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, would say to Hezekiah, who is this God that you're trusting him? He cannot stop me. And a letter was sent to Hezekiah and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah and the leaders and the people of Israel, there locked in the city walls of Jerusalem, they fasted and they prayed. And they cried out to the Lord and they sought the Lord. And the Lord sent an angel that killed 185,000 Assyrians that night. You see, the Lord will bring protection to you and to me. And I'm not saying as we go through this that there won't be people that won't come against us or give us difficult times or nothing bad will ever happen to us. 
But I do know this, that the Lord has defeated the enemy, Satan, hasn't he? And as Colossians chapter 2 says, wiping out the handwritings of requirements, that he made a public spectacle out of the enemy and disarmed those principalities and powers. The enemy, Satan, does not have authority or power over you because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, if you go into his territory, we know that Peter says that he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If you walk in disobedience, if you allow him to get a foothold into your life, if you compromise, he's going to pounce on you and rip your head off. And so the Lord has said, listen, I've already given you victory. Those principalities and powers, they've been stripped. It's a military term that Paul is using there in Colossians. It's the same meaning that the Romans would do when they would conquer the enemy and they would strip the enemy and make them walk in, in humility and, and um, humiliate them as they would walk through the cities with no clothes on. And that's what's happened to the demons and the principalities. They have no direct authority over you. But they are going to still try to harass us, Satan. And he's going to still try to get a foothold into our lives. But as James says, that we submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you because he's been defeated. So you walk in the ways of the Lord. And greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. And trust in the Lord and rest in the Lord in that. And so not only God's provision and God's protection, but verse 9 as well we read, For I will look... Uh, on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. And shall eat of the whole harvest and clear out the old because of the new. So God's provision, God's protection, God's proliferation are multiplying. You're going to be fruitful. It reminds me so much of the little boy that gave Jesus the few loaves and fish there on that hillside of Galilee. And Jesus took it and he broke it and, and blessed it. And he multiplied it and fed 5,000. We're going to talk about the parable of the talents this Sunday. That the Lord is going to tell us that parable in light of what we saw in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. That you are to be the wise and faithful servant that's looking for his master's return. Because I come at a time that you do not expect. And in light of that, he'll tell the parable of the ten virgins that we'll look at, the parable of the talents, the talents that were given to the servant, and the servant to be faithful that in what the goods and what he was entrusted to by the master. Because the master is going to come back. And all of us are going to give an account of what has been entrusted to us. I think it's a very powerful parable that we're going to look at. And so we know that as we live our lives, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think, Lord, i got so little to give to you. I'm not very smart. You know, I'm not super funny. Whatever it might be. And I think all of us can feel that way, can't we? But what little that we do have, that as we give to the Lord and walk in His ways, that He's going to bless it and He's going to multiply it. And we're going to bear forth fruit as we abide in Him and trust in Him. And allow Him to do in our lives what He desires to do and be good stewards of what He has given to us. Whatever talents that might be. And we'll talk further about that on Sunday. 
I think it's going to be a great encouragement to you as we do. So trusting in Him, He's going to allow you to be fruitful as you abide in Him. And in verse 11, And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your people, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. And so provision, protection, proliferation, but also the promise of His presence. You see, as you're walking in His ways and walking in holiness, you're going to sense His presence in a very deep and very real way. You see, it's whenever we're in compromise or we're pursuing sin, whenever we're going after the ways of the world, when we're rebelling against God, that's when you're going to feel distant from Him. And notice here in verse 13, he says that you guys, you're no longer in Egypt. You're no longer slaves. You're no longer in bondage. You're free from that. And that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian. And the thing I hope that we understand that you see the liberty that we have in Christ. And we do have liberty in Christ, don't we? But the liberty means that we're not free to sin. Because if you pursue that avenue, and if you pursue compromise, and if you go after the ways of the world, you know what the end result's going to be. It's going to be you're going to be in bondage. You're going to be in bondage to sin and discouragement and depression and defeat. You're going to be enslaved to it. And that's the lessons that we see from Genesis through Revelation, what sin does. See, our liberty and our freedom that we have in Christ means that we are free to live for Him. And we are free from the junk of the world and the deceit of the world and the deception of the world. And that's why I hope that we as Christians understand. Should we continue in sin that grace abounds? Paul says certainly not in Romans chapter 6. We're dead to that stuff. We're dead to that stuff when we identify with Christ in His burial and in His resurrection because we are raised in the newness of life. We get to live in that newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit and we are free to live for the Lord. And what a wonderful life that it is because the Lord did promise that I come to give you life and life abundantly. And that is He desires for us to experience that abundant life, that life flowing with milk and honey in our own lives because we're walking with Him. The children of Israel, we will see in the book of Numbers. I told you that the book of Leviticus covers about 30 days a month. When we get into the book of Numbers, it's going to cover 38 years. From the second year of their exodus, when they take a census, all the way to right before they go into the promised land. And when we get into the book of Numbers, what makes the book of Numbers really a a wonderful book is there's a lot of stories that are there in the book of Numbers and their experiences in their wilderness wandering. And one of the things that we're going to see very clearly here is that they did not walk in the ways of the Lord. They did not trust the Lord. So they spent 40 years out there in that hot, dry, barren desert. And I know Christians, they end up walking in the wilderness and their spiritual life is hot and barren because they're not walking in the ways of the Lord and there's compromise. And so the Lord comes along and says, listen, I want to bless you as you walk with me for you to walk in wisdom and in peace and the joy of the Lord, the strength of the Lord. I want to bless you so much as you turn to me and trust me and see that my promises are true for you. And that's where you're going to be truly free because Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So here we see that these promises, if you walk in my ways, and then verse 14, the transition, but if you do not obey me, do not observe all these commandments, 
we go on to read, and if you despise my statutes, verse 15, or if your soul abhors my judgment so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting uh, disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. We're going to see that this section isn't very nice. It's not real pretty. I do not understand why a teacher of God's word, why a pastor would not encourage their people to pursue holiness as we are told in the word of God. There seems to be a trend in the church that let's see how close we can get to the world or how much we can look like the world or how much of the world that we can bring into the church. We saw very clearly in all of it discourse what the end result of the world is going to be, isn't it? That man is going to, in his rebellion, if Jesus Christ had not come back and doesn't come back to cut those days short, that man would have destroyed himself. What the world has to offer, the end result, is deception and death and despair and hopelessness. And I pray that none of us that are in this room are putting our hope in the world. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. And we have a living hope, as Peter writes in his epistle, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I hope that we are ones that we understand that we have a loving God that forgives us, is full of mercy and grace, but there is consequences for disobedience. He's making this covenant with the children of Israel. He says, I will appoint terror. But here's the thing for you and for me, as we live under grace and as we understand the love of our Lord, I think that I would really be afraid if I didn't have a real heart for the Lord, if I despised the Lord in His Word, if I was determined that I was going to walk in disobedience. That should be feared to us. And one of the things that disobedience will do and compromise and sin and continuing in it is verse 16, it will cause sorrow of heart in your life. It will cause sorrow of heart in your life. And the enemy will take your food. He will take your food. In other words, you're just going to feel unsatisfied and unfulfilled in life. You see, that's the deception of the world and the enemy. The world comes along and dangles this in front of you and says, pursue this compromise. And the enemy does that because you'll receive pleasure. You'll get ahead. You'll gain. You'll benefit. But the end result is that you will not. And it's a lie. And you'll be fooled. And you'll play the fool. And the end result, again, is that you'll be unfulfilled and, and you will not be satisfied in your heart and in your soul. Again, whatever a man sows, so shall he reap, is what the Scripture says. So you don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. If you do not lose heart. And I know that there are days and there are moments in our lives where we just want to react out of the flesh. And there are days and there are moments in our lives where we want to do what we think ought to be best, or Lord, I'm just going to do it my way or whatever. But you don't lose heart. And you walk in the ways of the Lord and turn to Him. Trust Him, even when you think, Lord, how is this going to work out? I think if my own plan or go my own way, I know that that's not what you want me to do. And your word says other, you know, that I shouldn't go this way. But maybe I need to do that. 
Don't lose heart. You trust in the Lord. Remember he said in the Sabbath that, you know what, you're going to plant six years, seven years west of the land. Lord, how are we going to eat the seventh year? The Lord said, I'll provide for you. He wanted them to rest and to trust in him. And it's the same with you and with me as we continue to walk in his ways. But in verse 17, I will set my face against you and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you and you shall flee when no one uh, pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power. I'll make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And, and your strength shall be spent in vain. And your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me, verse 21, and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number. And your highways shall be desolate. And if by these things, if you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant when you are gathered together within your cities. I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. And then when I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall break your bread in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. Again, it's not a very pretty picture, but actually, as we continue on here, he's telling them their history. Much of what happened in their history, these things happened to them. Their highways desolate, their, their cities desolate, the enemy coming and taking their food, the land full of famine, all of this because they walked in disobedience. And as we read this, we think it's not a pretty picture. And so the question we can ask ourselves, what sin is worth all of this? Folks, what sin is worth the consequences that it brings? And it brings very negative consequences into our lives as we sin. What sin is worth the things that happen to us and the sadness and sorrow of heart and the other things that come with it that makes it worth it? And I pray that we would say in our hearts, it's not worth it. That it's not good. And verse 27, And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. And you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. That actually happened in Second Kings chapter 6. The house of Israel up north to ten northern tribes. When the Syria came and besieged the city, they couldn't get any food into it. And after weeks and after months, there was no more food left. And so they were eating donkey heads and they were eating dove droppings and they were also eating their own children. It is recorded, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, that it also happened during the captivity of Rome when they sieged the city in 70 A.D. in Jerusalem. They reverted to cannibalism. Their cities would be destroyed. And we also see verse 29 or 30, I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. He says those idols you are worshiping are lifeless and they are worthless. And he kept telling them that and warning them that those idols never helped them once when they really, truly, truly needed help. Never rescued them, never helped them, was not any benefit because they're lifeless and they're worthless. And, and it's vain is what the Lord warned them. Now we lay waste cities or cities waste 
And bring your sanctuaries to desolation, verse 31. I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. And I will bring the land to desolation. Your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. And your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. And then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. And you are your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. It shall rest for the time it did not rest your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. And again, we talked about last week, for 490 years, they did not observe the Sabbath year to rest the land. And so the Lord said, I'm going to get those Sabbaths back for 70 years. You're going to go into captivity into Babylon. And that's what happened. Verse 36, and for those of you who are left, I will send fatness, or faintness, that is, into their hearts, into the lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee, and they shall flee as though fleeing from a sword and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword when no one pursues and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemy's land. Also in their father's iniquities which are with them, they shall waste away. But, verse 40, and thank goodness for the but. I am so thankful for the buts that are in the Scripture. (laughs) Because the Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead. But God has rescued us by the blood of Jesus Christ. So oftentimes when we see these buts, it's good news for us. We are dead in trespasses and sins. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus Christ came and died for you and for me. And I know that when we fall into sin, there's consequences, but there's forgiveness. And there's God's mercy and His love remains. And that's what He's going to talk about here. And He tells them what's going to happen in their history. And of course it did as they would go into captivity. And of course as Jesus, as we saw in Matthew's Gospel, was speaking to a nation that was going to go through judgment in 70 A.D. by the Romans and then scattered throughout the nations. But a promise was given to them. If they confessed their iniquity, verse 40, and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, that they also have walked contrary to me. And that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember, I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because of their despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. In verse 44, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them, to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt and inside the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. And these are the statutes and judgments and the laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. The Lord says, listen, I'm not going to forget you. When you go off in the bondage and the land is reaching its Sabbaths, when you humble yourself and confess in their uncircumcised of hearts, verse 41. You know, part of repentance is humbling your heart. 
Jeremiah would speak to the nation right before they went into captivity. And he said, you guys need to circumcise your hearts. You have uncircumcised of heart. In other words, you need to cut out, cut away those things that are not right with the Lord. You need to humble your hearts and turn your hearts towards him. Again, the key to holiness and abiding in Christ is, first of all, having a heart for Christ. And, and humbling ourselves when we do sin. And confessing, confessing simply means I'm in agreement with you, Lord, that it is wrong. It's not making excuses for it. It's not ignoring it. It is confessing the Lord that I have done wrong. Your word says this, and I have missed the mark. I have sinned. That's what sin means. I have caused this iniquity uh, or committed this iniquity. That means iniquity uh, is, is kind of sins and transgressions. Transgressions means that I stepped over the line purposely. There's a line. I know it's wrong and I stepped over it on purpose. Sometimes we'll sin when we don't mean to intentionally sin. We just get angry or lose our cool or whatever it might be. The Lord says, I've forgiven all of that. All your sins, transgressions, iniquities... But for you and for me, confession means I'm in agreement that it's wrong, Lord, in humbling our hearts before him and coming to him. The Lord says to the children of Israel in this covenant that he made with them, I'm going to remember you and bring you back into the land. And of course, that's going to be ultimately fulfilled when we see the restoration of Israel, when the Lord comes back to establish his kingdom, that he's going to keep this covenant with them. That's why I don't agree with a lot of uh, those teachers, that uh, you know, pastors that believe in the replacement theology. That is, the church has replaced Israel. Because we see throughout the Old Testament this promise reiterated over and over again. I will not cast you out. I will not forgive that covenant. I will bring it to pass, the Lord says. And there's going to be a day where I'm going to bring you back into the land, gather you all, and I will be your God. The restoration of Israel and God will keep his promise. And that's good news for me. Sometimes the people in the replacement theology, but Israel blew it. Well, I've blown it. Does that mean I lose my salvation? No. Because the blood of Jesus Christ has forgiven me of all sins. And I am so thankful that I can look at God's word and say, Lord, your word is true for me. And you are faithful to me even when I'm unfaithful. And Lord, that just makes me want to love you more. He will bring his promise to pass to the children of Israel ultimately in the millennium reign of Jesus Christ when he comes back to establish his kingdom. And he will be bringing that promise to you and to me to pass that he's going to take us to heaven to be with him. And we can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion, especially in the day of Christ Jesus. He will bring it to completion. Thank you, Lord, that you're going to finish that work in me and that I'm in your hands. Well, chapter 27, very quickly, it talks about redeeming persons and property. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates a vow, uh, certain persons to the Lord according to your valuation, you say, What does it mean to consecrate something or someone to the Lord? What we're going to see here is, is this making a vow and dedicating or consecrating a person property, possessions, land, whatever it is to the Lord. That is, you're dedicating it to the Lord. 
And then if you want to redeem it back, the redeeming value of it, of the persons and property. In verse 3, if your valuation is of a male of 20 years old to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. If it is from 5 years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels, and for females, 10 shekels. And if from a month old up to 5 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 5 shekels of silver, and for a female, your valuation shall be 3 shekels of silver. And if from 60 years old and above, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. But if he is too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed. The priest shall value him. You say, what in the world is this all about? This is what it's about. If a person would consecrate, dedicate themselves to the Lord, we see in First Samuel, Hannah, she dedicated who? Samuel, didn't she? To the Lord. And he would go in the tabernacle, and he would serve, and he would be the prophet in the land. But there was that vow, that vow that you would give. It was voluntarily, and it was out of a grateful heart, first of all. But you would value a person, a person would be vowed, or your property or land to the Lord. I'm giving it to you, the Lord. I'm giving it, perhaps, to the Levites for the work of the ministry, whatever it is. If you wanted to redeem it back, then there's different valuations. A male between 20 and 60 years old, he was a hard worker and stuff, so his valuation was higher than perhaps a female. But I want to say this. Notice here that there was a valuation for the male, female, for the young, for the old, for the, even the infant, for, for everyone. Will you understand that you're valuable to the Lord? And I pray that every single one of us, that we would be in this room and saying, I want to dedicate my life to you, Lord. And here we see even there was a valuation to the children, to the young. That first of all, that moms and dads and grandparents and that we would say, you know what, my children are valuable. And I want to dedicate them to the Lord. And I know that, Lord, you see me as being valuable and a treasure to you, to be used of you. And I want to dedicate my life to you. And don't look at this and think, well, you know, does that mean God loves a man more than a woman and an older person more than a younger person and all this? You see, we've all been redeemed by the same price. The blood of Jesus Christ. And the foot of the cross is flat. And he doesn't look at me and say, you know what, you're more valuable than than somebody else. He doesn't say, you know, Pastor Jeff, you're more valuable than everybody else in the church. No, not at all. He has a purpose and a plan and you're valuable to Him. You just dedicate your life to Him and you dedicate your children to the Lord and say, Lord, you help me in raising them up in the ways of the Lord. I dedicate them. Give me the wisdom to do that. We go on in verse 9. If it is an animal that, that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not substitute it or exchange it, good for bad, bad for good. Or if it, he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. 
And so we see that he continues on. And um, if, verse 11, it's an unclean animal, which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest. And the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. But if he wants at all to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth to your valuation. In other words, animals were valuable possessions, weren't they? So our possessions, whatever it is that we have, we dedicate that to the Lord. The Lord, you've blessed me with this. I want to use it in a way that honors you. I want to dedicate these things to you. So what happens so oftentimes is is we use them just for our own purposes or we're so, you know, grabby and this is mine and no one touching and all this. But Lord, whatever you've given to me, Lord, I want to use it in a way that is dedicated to you to be a blessing for others and for you to honor you. And then we read in verse 14. And when a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether good or bad, and the priest values it, so shall it stand. And he, if he dedicates it once to redeem his house, then he must add one-fifth of the money to your valuation to it, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates it to the Lord, part of a field of his possession, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. A homer barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, uh, according to the seed um, in the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand, verse 18. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall reckon him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of Jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him. But if he does not want to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall be uh, not be redeemed anymore. But if the field, verse 21, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field, it shall be the possession of the priest. In other words, what the Lord is saying in this is that houses, land that is dedicated to the Lord, we again, in our own lives as New Testament priests, that we want to make sure that we dedicate our homes, whatever it is that we have, to the Lord. Now in verses 20 and 21 here, he, he's saying and talking about the year of Jubilee. Remember the year of Jubilee, everything went back and was redeemed back to the original owner. He's saying here in verse 21, you know, 20, if you do not want to redeem the field, if he sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. In other words, don't try to pull a fast one on the Lord. If you sold the land to somebody else and then you said, okay, you know, Levites, priests, I'm going to dedicate it to the Lord and then it's your jubilee and you think you're going to get it back to yourself, uh-uh, it's going to remain with the priest. Don't try to pull a fast one when you dedicate whatever you have to the Lord and do it half-heartedly. And that's what the Lord is saying in this. Verse 22, if a man dedicates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon it to him, the worth of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee, and he shall give your valuation on that day as the holy offering to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from who it was bought to the one who owned the land as a possession. And all your valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 geras to the shekel. And in verse 26, talking about um, the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn. No man shall dedicate it. Whether it is an ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. So what he's saying here, if that which I've already told you belongs to me, you can't dedicate it. 
So it already belongs to me, essentially, is what he's saying. And if it is an unclean animal, so if you have any cats, then he shall redeem it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. If it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation. He shall add one-fifth to it. Or I just seen if you're awake. So if it's not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. And no person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. In other words, if you committed a crime that is under capital punishment, it's going to take place, the punishment. In verse 30, And all the tithes of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. And concerning the tithes of the herd of the flock or whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he does exchange it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. In other words, what the Lord is saying here as he concludes and says, these are commandments which the Lord commanded Moses and the children of Israel, that in the tithe, in your giving, that as you tithe of your sheep, you had a rod, and the sheep went under the, the rod, you pick out the tenth one. Don't say, you know what, arrange it to where, again, let's put the tenth one where it's a sickly lamb, or one I don't want. And if it's a good one, you think, oh, I didn't want to really give that one to the Lord, and you want to exchange it, then not only did the Lord get that lamb, but he got another one like it. In other words, don't pull a fast one on the Lord. In your giving, the New Testament says that when you give to the Lord, and it's whether it's a tithe, whether it's finances of any sort, your time, your energy, your worship, don't pull a fast one on the Lord. And you give to him what honors him. And you give it with reverence and with respect and with love. The Lord loves a cheerful giver, one who is given willingly and freely. Because, Lord, you gave me the very best, your son. And so, Lord, I want to give you every area of my life as I dedicate it to you. And as I give to you, I want to give freely. And willingly. And I want to give to you to honor you and to bless you. And Father, we thank you for this wonderful book that we've gone through. The Lord, that we look at these principles and these things that have been spoken to us. And Lord, we thank you that we can make application. So I pray that we would be ones that, Lord, that first of all, that we would have a desire to walk in your ways and have a heart for you and to abide in you. And we know that there is blessing for the Christian, for the person who says, Lord, I want to honor you with my life in everything that I do, in every area of my life. And I want to dedicate the things that I have that have been entrusted to me, my children, Lord, my home, what you've given me and blessed me with, Lord, my talents, my abilities, and Everything else, Lord, I want to honor you and I want to give to you freely and willingly. And Lord, I thank you that you gave me the very best, your son. The perfect one who came. Lived a sinless life. 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for me so that I may have life. So, Father, I pray that tonight as we just continue the worship for a few moments, that these things that we have talked about, and Lord, that you would just help us to reflect on them. And if there's anything in our hearts that's not right when it comes to our giving, or if there's an area of a life that we're pursuing that's not pleasing to you, or Lord, you've been speaking to us to turn away from it. Maybe just an attitude that we've had. Maybe anger towards somebody. Maybe it's deliberate sin in some area. Maybe it's dishonesty. Whatever it might be. Lord, that we would confess it and be in agreement that it's wrong and repent. And turn to you and receive, Lord, again, just your loving kindness, your forgiveness. Lord, just your your love that remains. Father, I pray that you would just stir our hearts right now as we just focus and worship you. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen.